Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another evening where we will continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. And like I mentioned yesterday, really we are just still laying the foundation, right? I said it's going to take a couple of days to do so. Uh, Yesterday we got into some examination into what inspiration and inerrancy is all about. We considered some authorship as well. One of the things I want to do this evening before we get into some of the literary considerations of the book of Genesis is to go back and just hit the refresh button on what it means to interpret sacred scripture literally and to do so within the context of the senses of scripture. A question has already come to me, Joe, what is the value of interpreting the text literally when it comes to the first chapter of the book of Genesis, certainly we are going to get into that. But to really respond to that, one has to have an understanding of the senses of Scripture. Now, you can turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and it'll certainly give you uh, a definition of the senses of Scripture. And so what I want to do now is just kind of go through that a little bit and to reflect with it. When you're talking about the senses of Scripture, which are tools to better interpret sacred Scripture— you're talking about really the principal means by which to interpret sacred scripture. Because the Bible has both divine and human authors, we are required as interpreters of the sacred text to master really a different sort of reading than we are used to. First, we must read scripture according to its literal sense, as we read any other human literature. At this initial stage, we strive to discover that meaning, the meaning of the words and expressions used by the biblical writers as they were understood in their original setting and by their original recipients. This means, among other things, that we do not interpret everything we read literalistically, as though sacred scripture never speaks in a figurative or symbolic way. You and I both know it often does. So rather, we read it according to the rules that govern its different literary forms of writing. And this, of course, would depend on whether or not we are reading a narrative, a poem, a letter, a parable, maybe in apocalyptic vision. Okay, this, of course, is is what the book of Revelation was all about. So the church calls us to read the divine books in this way— to ensure that we understand what the human authors were laboring to explain to God's people. So what the literal sense is all about then is coming to appreciate (laughs) who the author was writing to at that time. I have given the example before of my sister to explain the literal sense. My sister, who is a a Carmelite cloistered nun, um, she writes me letters. And every time I receive a letter, I am always deeply moved because she always has words of encouragement. She always has words that lift me up. But in those letters, she often talks about the things that are going on around us today. 
it is often stated to me about my sister's vocation, you know, it must be so hard because they are away, they're secluded, and, and they're not living in the real world. They, they don't know what's going on and so on and so forth. Well, my dear friends, let me tell you, a lot of the people in the quote-unquote real world go to my sister's convent and ask for their prayers, and in doing so, share quite a bit about what we don't even know. And here I'm even thinking about specifically politicians, lobbyists, uh, that kind of person. So in her letters, from time to time, she will share with me things that I wouldn't otherwise know. And it's striking because here I am in the world, (laughs) uninformed about (laughs) what she now knows. Uh, Anyhow, if I were to take these letters that she writes me, put them in a treasure box, bury them, and and if someone were to find them 500 years from now, would they be moved by its content? Yes, absolutely. I think they'd be inspired by what my Carmelite cloistered religious sister has to say. But would they fully understand the letter without rolling up their sleeves and coming to understand what was going on in the Sacramento Diocese 2017? No, they wouldn't. They couldn't because she's constantly talking about what's going on in the Sacramento Diocese 2017, if not the state or country. So the person reading the letter she addressed to me 500 years from now is going to have to know not only what was going on in the Sacramento Diocese, but in some cases, yeah, also what was going on in the world. Maybe she's talking about Donald Trump. Maybe she's talking about the current events with North Korea. All of that stuff is in there. So the person reading the letter 500 years from now is going to have to be informed on what was going on in this diocese and with Donald Trump and North Korea and all of that, so as to fully understand the letter. This is what's going on with sacred scripture. This is what's going on in the literal sense. Just coming to appreciate that historical context, all of the cultural milieu, if you will. So important. Now, the literal sense is not the only sense of sacred scripture. Since we interpret its sacred pages according to the spiritual senses as well, we have, well, the spiritual sense. In this way, we search out what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us, right? Beyond even what the human authors have consciously asserted. Whereas the literal sense of sacred scripture describes a historical reality, a fact, precept, or event, the spiritual sense discloses the deeper mysteries revealed in and through those historical realities. That's uh, the Ignatius commentary there. I love that. The spiritual sense discloses the deeper mysteries revealed through the historical realities. So we can say then, as the commentary says here, what the soul is to the body, the spiritual sense is to the literal sense. So you have the letter and the Spirit, okay? The letter and the Spirit. Now, the spiritual sense is broken up into three subcategories. The first is the allegorical sense. What's an allegory? An allegory is is the description of one thing under the image of another. Boy, have you heard me talk about this before, right? (laughs) The description of one thing under the image of another. So the allegorical sense really unveils the spiritual and prophetic meaning of biblical history. Allegorical interpretations, thus, my friends, reveal how persons, uh, events, institutions of Scripture 
point beyond themselves toward greater mysteries yet to come, or maybe display the fruits of mysteries already revealed. Uh, The greater mysteries yet to come is what we would find in the Old Testament, and the display of the fruits of mysteries already revealed, of course, would be the New Testament projecting towards the sacraments. Christians have often read the Old Testament in this way to discover how the mystery of Christ and the New Covenant was once hid in the Old and how the full significance of the Old Covenant was finally made manifest in the New. That's uh, the rich reflection of St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine. Now, the, the second sense is what we call the moral sense, which is simply the revelation of how the actions of God's people in the Old Testament and the life of Jesus in the New Testament prompt us, you and I, my friends, to form virtuous habits in our own lives. Basically, it is that sense that when we're done reading it, we say to ourselves, this is what we ought to do. The moral sense is intended to build up the virtue above all other virtues, charity, right? Charity, to will the good of the other for the sake of other, and to read the old and new is to be inspired to do so, hopefully by the grace of God. Remember what I said yesterday, before we do anything when we read sacred scripture, sacred scripture, or give commentary to sacred scripture, is to go on bended knee. Pray for the grace that God might give you the eyes to see what he wants you to see, and the wisdom to say what he wants you to say. We can only do this if we start our studies on bended knee. Lastly, that the third sense what is called the anagogical sense. The anagogical is just a fancy word that means future. Okay, so this is the sense which points us upward to heavenly glory. It shows us how countless events in the Bible prefigure our final union with God in eternity and how things that are seen on earth are figures of things unseen in heaven. So there you have it, the literal sense and the spiritual sense with the spiritual senses, uh, three subcategories, the allegorical sense, the moral sense, and the anagogical or futuristic sense. Now, with that, (laughs) we can better appreciate that a sound interpretation of Genesis depends, at least in part, on a sound evaluation of its literary form. Certainly, This has proven to be a formidable challenge in the case of Genesis chapters 1 to 11, as we had begun to discuss yesterday, because it resists easy classification among the surviving genres of ancient literature. In the end, we could say and affirm that Genesis recounts things that actually happened, but with the twofold provision that Genesis does not offer, say, a strictly scientific description of of creation, nor must everything stated in these chapters be understood in a strictly literal way. The church affirms that uh, the creation of the world, along with the original holiness and fall of the first couple, as very real historical events that sacred scripture describes in symbolic and figurative ways. So, guided by these pronouncements that come to us from the church and, of course, sacred scripture, and informed by contemporary biblical scholarship, it would appear 
that we can say Genesis chapters 1 to 11 very much occupy a unique position between history and myth. On the one hand, these chapters offer a very real historical account of primeval times that explains the existence, real existence, and and conditions of the world as we know it. I mean, my dear friends, the historicity of such things as the creation of the cosmos by God, the creation of man and woman, the unity of the human race, the testing and fall of man from a state of grace and, and original innocence, all of that and so much more cannot be compromised, for these constitute the essential pillars of the biblical worldview and really remain the basic presuppositions of the Christian faith. But, on the other hand, the first 11 chapters of Genesis exhibit notable parallels with the mythological traditions of the ancient Near East. And these ancient myths of origin abound with poetic imagery and symbolic representations of the mysteries that pertain to divine and human realities. Of course, Genesis differs from the myths of Israel's neighbors in in having an objective grounding in history. And certainly, at several points, Genesis is is anti-mythological by intention. Nevertheless, this does not prevent the sacred writer from utilizing common cultural forms of expression, also used by the mythmakers of the ancient world, in order to make his description of primeval history understandable to his contemporaries. Essentially, my friends, myth is an aid, a type of writing that is used to explain a real truth. Okay? So very, very important here. To understand one is to understand the other, and to understand the other is to understand one. All right, what about its themes? Well, the book of Genesis is certainly a historical and theological introduction to the Bible. It is never to be reduced to the historical and always to be understood in light of the theological. It lays the indispensable groundwork for really the rest of biblical, uh, just not tradition, but revelation. For this reason, the book adopts a universal and really religious perspective. The world is the stage of the Genesis drama, and God, of course, is the main actor behind the scenes of history and human affairs that it records. This broad perspective is certainly most evident in the early chapters, which encompass the divine creation of the cosmos, the formation and fall of the human race, the epidemic spread of moral and spiritual corruption. But concern for the world at large, though less obvious on the surface, remains at the center what? But these patriarchal narratives as well. And that moving story forward, of course, is what we read in Genesis chapters 12 to 50. The central theme to just not those chapters, but really all of the book of Genesis is God's covenant relationship with man, is it not? What does the word covenant mean? If you were to open up any dictionary, really what you would find is some form of compact agreement. Covenant comes from the Latin word convenire, which means compact agreement or a coming together. 
But what God does is he takes this idea of covenant and he gives it much richer meaning. Because when you talk about covenant with God, it's just not this is yours and this is mine, but I am yours and you are mine. Because what we are dealing with as it relates to covenant with God is not an exchange of things, but an exchange of persons. This kind of mutual reciprocity. He and me, I and him. Is this not what John communicates in his gospel? And this is what we see from the outset in the book of Genesis with the creation of Adam and Eve, because that's the first covenant. This kind of marital covenant. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And you see these covenants emerge and expand out from that. After the great covenant with Adam and Eve, you have the great covenant with Noah. A covenant that, as we will treat in great detail, mirrors that of the covenant with Adam and Eve. But as it mirrors that covenant, you do see that God's covenant family is expanding. So it moves from two to eight, a marriage to a family, and then on to Abraham, where we begin to see this covenant turn into a tribe. Genesis 12 to 50 develops this seed, this line, this covenantal seed. And so covenants are very important to Genesis chapters 1 to 50. Without an understanding of what a covenant is, you really wouldn't be able to interpret the book of Genesis. Covenant theology unlocks the key to the book of Genesis. Certainly, we will see that in our treatment and our study of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, in one more broad stroke, we could also speak to just the general Christian perspective, if you will, to the book of Genesis. Because Christianity as a whole very much sees the mystery of salvation prophesied and prefigured in multiple ways in the book of Genesis. Consider the first man, Adam, is, well, what did I talk about yesterday? A type of the divine man, Jesus Christ, who assumes headship over the human race to repair the damage done by Adam's rebellion. How about the blessings of Eden with its flowing rivers and tree of life pointing to the blessings of eternal life that awaits us in heaven? For those of you who are faithful listeners, you might recall that as we studied the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 5, we reflected on the significance of the tree of life in the book of Revelation in chapter 22 and how God indeed was coming full circle, that in the heavenly Jerusalem we will come to know the blessings of Eden, the blessings of eternal life. Again, this is what awaits us if we follow his command, right? How about the vanquishing of the serpent and how that is realized when Christ reigns victorious in in the lives of his disciples? Of course, we have the raging waters of the flood, prefiguring the saving waters of baptism. Another set of verses that certainly we will explore in great detail. We read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 to 21, Peter actually saying that the flood is a type of baptism, a teaching I certainly look forward to. What about Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20? where we read about Melchizedek, 
Melchizedek, by the way, in the Hebrew is righteous king or priest king. Does not Melchizedek, the priest king who offers bread and wine, set for us an example, a type of Christ the king, and his own priestly offering of the Eucharist under the same, under the same visible signs? For those of you who want a homework assignment and you want to get into the New Testament, I'm compelled to encourage you to do this right now. And certainly, we will do this when we get to Genesis chapter 14. Read Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. And then read the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 to 19. And then read Mark 14, verses 21 and following. I encourage you to do that. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 19. And then Mark 14, verses 20, 21 and following. Also, we read in the book of Genesis, Abraham as that kind of archetype believer and his faith in the power and goodness of God. And now the New Testament goes back to Abraham that we might turn our attention to Abraham to see his model-like faith, his model-like obedience, his model-like faithfulness as it is read in the Hebrew. How about the offering and return of Isaac, not spared by his anguished father, foreshadowing the dying and rising of Jesus, the beloved son who was not spared by his father, but was handed over for the world's salvation. Brothers and sisters, what you can begin to grasp as you carefully go through the unique Christian perspective upon Genesis is, well, the importance of the allegorical sense that I was talking about earlier. Because remember, as an allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another, it is otherwise a type, right? A type. In that passage in Paul's epistle to Rome, where Paul is talking about Adam being a type of Christ, the Greek there is typus. It literally translates as pattern. This might conjure up the image of a typewriter. What is the function of a typewriter? But you have those still letters, right? Impressing itself upon the canvas, right? You hit a key, and that still letter is impressing itself upon the canvas. And so you have an image left, a sign left, if you will, of what that letter represents, okay? Hence, typewriter. The Old Testament, my friends, is kind of like a canvas, an impression, where all of these figures in the Old Testament are leaving impressions that point towards Christ. The Old Testament, we could say, is a kind of typewriter that prefigures Christ, as it is constantly leaving a pattern that points towards Christ. So our study on the book of Genesis, my friends, is going to be one that is, as you can well imagine, (laughs) rooted in certain principles. Because if we do not apply certain principles, then we will miss out on the full sense of the text. Just not what the authors wanted us to understand, but at the same time, what God, who is the primary mover, wants us to understand. And so certainly... As I noted yesterday, we will pay close attention 
to those first Christian teachers who applied those principles. Principles, my friends, that are in Scripture itself, right? What do we read in John chapter 5, verse 39? Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. Well, my dear friends, think about it. We didn't have the New Testament when Jesus said that, so what was he talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. So when he says, you search the Scriptures because in them they bear witness to me, what he's saying is, you search the Scriptures, and upon doing so, you will come to understand that I am the fulfillment of their prophetic thrust. What is Jesus doing on the road to Emmaus, but interpreting how he is the fulfillment to the law of Moses? What does Philip say to Nathaniel? We have found him. We have found him, the fulfillment to the law of Moses. And his name is Jesus of Nazareth. Come and see. Come and see. And so, my friends, with that, I invite you to come and see, to come and explore with that great gift of faith all that God has in store for you by the grace of God go I, but also certainly <laughs> for me by the grace of God go I, that we might journey together in our study on the book of Genesis and be forever changed by it. There's always, always more to come to know. What did St. Thomas Aquinas say? The more, the more I come to know, the more I realize how little I know. This is the beauty of our faith. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen? And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.